I'm Baratunde Thurston, and this is Spit, an iHeartRadio podcast with 23andMe. This is the podcast that explores how DNA is changing our lives and the world around us. In today's episode, we're going deep on mental health. We want to know, why is it so hard for us to talk about mental illness as a society? And how do we move beyond this stigma and begin addressing mental health treatment in the same way we talk about any other medical condition? 332 million people around the world are living with depression. That's just about the entire population of the United States. And here in our country, 18% of us, some 40 million people, suffer from anxiety disorders, the leading cause of disability in terms of years lost to disease. One in four of us will suffer some type of mental illness in our lifetimes, yet only two-thirds will seek treatment. Why is that? With suicide rates climbing to the 10th leading cause of death in the U.S. and the second leading cause of death among young adults, we need to be having more conversations to help remove the stigma surrounding mental health. Mental health is just health. Though we may not show it on the outside, just about everyone is fighting some sort of battle on the inside. Truth be told, I've had my own challenges with mental health. I've even helped to bury a close friend who from the outside no one would ever have expected to take his own life. Today, we're discussing this very important issue with a trio of folks who are working every day to combat the stigma and discrimination associated with mental illness and who are using their platforms to drive a deeper understanding, some through science and research and some through stories, advocacy, and the healing power of music. In part one of this episode, we have a deep and moving conversation with musician, songwriter, and mental health advocate Mike Shinoda, alongside Dr. Gail Saltz, clinical associate professor of psychiatry at the New York Presbyterian Hospital Weill Cornell Medical College, and a psychoanalyst with the New York Psychoanalytic Institute. I've been learning about it as things go along. But what I do know from my own personal experience watching my friend is that it was always a roller coaster. Like you just wouldn't know he'd come in and you wouldn't know if today was a good day or or a bad day. Genetics do play a role. And the reason we know that is that studies that have looked at, for example, identical twins or first degree relatives show there's a much higher incidence of anxiety disorders. And actually it's interesting, even the specific anxiety disorder like panic disorder or phobias. After this conversation, we decided to go deeper, deeper into the brain, deeper into the research, and deeper into the future in terms of advancements and treatment. So after Mike and Gail's conversation, stay tuned for part two with Dr. Ahmad Hariri, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Duke University, who tells us the role genes play and who's channeling learnings from his latest research to help provide more treatment to more people. When we have those large numbers of individuals in these studies, I think what we're going to find is that there is variation all over the genome across hundreds of genes, if not thousands of genes, that collectively work together in ways that are going to be even more complex to shape the kind of what we strive for in understanding an individual's kind of genetic risk or familial risk for mental illness. I've got to say, this is a truly revelatory episode. And I am so excited for us to go on this journey together. We begin in Charlotte, North Carolina, backstage with Mike and Gail as his crew prepares for that evening show. Mike, Gail, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you both for being here. 
Um, and I just want to acknowledge that we have sounds going on in the background because we are backstage. Mike is about to do a big show, and we've got crews dragging things, phones are ringing, rock music is about <laughs> to happen, rap music is about to happen, real music's about to happen. So thank you, Mike, for letting thank us... Uh, thank you, and thanks for your patience with the noise. So, uh, Dr. Saltz, I'd like to start with some of the science and start with you as the degree holder in these matters. What are anxiety disorders within this class of mental illness, and What's happening in our brains when we talk about this? So anxiety disorders are basically our brain using the normal danger alarm system that we all have. So if you see a bear. I'm definitely right, alarmed. You're alarmed. Yes. And what happens in your, in your mind, in your brain is it registers that. It says, I have to turn on my sympathetic nervous system. I have to release certain neurotransmitters. And those neurotransmitters are going to enable me to either flee or fight, right? The flight or fight response. And, and that's I'm a not normal fighting a bear, just normal for the response. So I think flea's a good choice. <laughs> yes. But people who have anxiety disorders have an overreactive amygdala and hippocampus. Those are the areas that process fear. And because it's overactive, lots of things that are either just in their mind and actually not even real, or things that are real but wouldn't make other people anxious signal that same alarm to them. And it's happening much of the day, every day, for an extended period of time. So they get both the psychological thought of how can I flee or fight or do something in this situation, the worry that comes with that all the time, what if this happens, what if that happens, and the physiological response. So some people, for example, who have panic, which is a kind of anxiety disorder, have the shortness of breath, the tingly feeling in their body, the rapid heartbeat, as though they have to hurry up and flee or fight. And when you have that for an extended period of time, it compromises your ability to function at work, you can't concentrate, right? You're kind of miserable all the time and it affects your ability to have relationships. And when you've reached that point that it's affecting your functioning, you have an anxiety disorder. So anxiety, normal, sometimes even useful, helpful, right? Hopefully we're all a little anxious right now because that makes us perform better. There's a sweet spot beyond which it compromises your ability to function. Now you have a disorder. That was the clearest explanation of anything I've ever heard. <laughs> Thank you. I'm serious. That was so dope. We've talked in this series so much about genetics. And I'm curious, to what degree do our genes play a role in our likelihood of experiencing anxiety disorders? Is there an anxiety gene or a, or a depression gene? So the answer is genetics do play a role. And the reason we know that is that studies that have looked at, for example, identical twins or first degree relatives show there's a much higher incidence of anxiety disorders. And actually it's interesting, even the specific anxiety disorder like panic disorder or phobias, like if I had a phobia to a dog, it'd be much more likely that my children would also have a phobia specifically to a dog. So there, it, Depression runs in families, anxiety disorders run in families, bipolar disorder runs in families, but there is not a gene. In other words, it's not passed on in an autosomal dominant way like I have the gene, now you have the gene, you get it. It's We don't know. It's, it's some sort of complicated combination probably of genes and environmental factors. So what's important to understand is that when you are born with a set of genes, those don't stay your set of genes. Environmental issues turn your genes on and off as we age. And so what's happening to you could turn off a gene, like say you do some things to try to treat yourself early on, 
to essentially avoid developing one of these issues because you know that this is something that you're predisposed to. That could help you not have it, possibly ever. On the other hand, let's say you're predisposed and you have difficult things happen, traumatic events that might not even be in your control. That might cue you up to be more likely to have it. So it's not an all or nothing thing. It's complicated, but it is valuable to know if these issues run in your family. You are making me think of the two people you're talking to in terms of the environments that we're in. We've got musician, Mike, myself, I've done a lot of comedy over the years. Are we putting ourselves in an environment that's going to activate those those genes more likely than not? Or do the arts help you process right. and work through some of those things? Well, what's fascinating actually about the arts, um, and this is this is actually related to the most recent book that I just did called The Power of Different, The Link Between Disorder and Genius. It is the neuroscience behind the fact that people who are highly creative, like the two of you, and particularly successful in it, in other words, not just creative internally, but productive with their creativity, that potential and the use of that potential is hardwired to the very things that often, unfortunately, make one suffer from a mental health issue. So we know it's not that you can't be, let's say, a person who has none of these issues and be creative, but we know you've lucked out. You lucked out. Okay. (laughs) But we actually do know that people who are particularly creative, you know, on the higher end of that spectrum are far more likely to have some of these particular mental health issues and that they're part and parcel treat you still should treat them because treating them doesn't take away the potential but you should be looking for your potential and so there is this intense connection and living out your creativity actually is useful it's often therapeutic one may express things that one is having as an internal struggle and find it very therapeutic so it's not traumatic the trauma or the difficulties tend to be Earlier in life, things that, you know, your parents divorced, um, you had a particular loss, you weren't taught, you were helicoptered so much, you didn't learn any coping skills, any resilience, your parents never let you fall down or fail in any way. So then when you're faced with that you're older, you have a more difficult time, you're more brittle, you start using substances. That's also a risk factor for developing some of these things. So there are many things along the way that could make it more likely, but being in a field where you can produce and be productive, generally speaking, no, unless it's a field where everybody around you is using and abusing substances, that can make it more difficult. So for me, just to give a little background for listeners who may not be as familiar, I grew up drawing and painting. I grew up making music. Uh, I was doing classical piano for 10 years when I was, I don't know, I probably started when I was like three or four, but I always thought I was going to be a painter. That was my, really what my focus was. And the music was a hobby. And I went to school for visual arts at Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. I was looking to get into illustration or like I wanted to paint to do album covers. I wanted to do movie posters, maybe even get into um, animation or, or video game art. Um, and then the music took off. Chester, my like we were like the two singers of the band. We were the dual focus of the band. I started the band and once we found him, it was like he was like the missing piece. And uh, we didn't know each other very well in the beginning, but as we got to know one another, it was like this inseparable thing. And he was very, I came from a very like secure kind of family system, a very, you know, my parents are still married. Uh, They took great care of us. And I feel like I had a good upbringing and Chester kind of had a very 
dysfunctional home system that he grew up in. And, and one of the things that made our, not only our, our friendship really strong, but also our, you know, it played into the music was the fact that it was peanut butter and jelly. Like we were so different and we, I had a way of, as he would describe it, like saying the, like writing the things that were on his mind. I would come to him with songs and lyric ideas and things, and he would help me understand where I was getting it, where I was like hitting the bullseye and where I, he felt like something was not quite right. You know, what's so cool about that is actually in the most creative people, it is a combination of what I would call like a messy brain mm. and an organized brain, mm. but like this yin and yang of you have to have mm. both yeah. in order to produce something. So like if your brain is messy, it has a space for innovation Okay. And the production of like whatever he was say, yeah. telling you about, yeah. but then has to have some organization to take that and bring it to fruition, yeah. right? And so peanut it, butter and, and jelly. It's peanut butter Jelly's and jelly. Messy. I never thought peanut about it that way. Peanut butter holds and binds. Yeah. There's also another lane that we would look at things, which was you know your analytical brain and your creative brain. He was much more on the creative side. He had trouble organizing things. I was even with both. And that was actually unusual, even when I was in art school, I'd have most of them, I mean, you know, if you've ever been to an art school that only does, you know, a design school, for example, like CalArts or Otis or RISD or Art Center, you find that like 75, 80% of the school population is introverted. People are very creative, but not very organized. And I was, you know, it was one of those rare situations where I'm kind of a little more um, outgoing and organized. So that, you know, in terms of our relationship, that's kind of like how it worked in a sense. Chester died by suicide about almost a year and a half ago. Some people ask me, you know, the obvious things like, well, what happened? Did you know? Were there signs? All of these things, right? And the answer is really, of course there were, of course. He was the same guy. In essence, he was always the same guy. Without those things, I don't think we would have made the music that we made. It was the type of music that I've always been drawn to, the type of lyrics that I've always been drawn to, but I didn't live it the way he lived it. And when we put all those things together, that's kind of how the DNA of the band was formed. And that's the reason the music sounded the way it does. Now, truth be told, some of the lyrics that they point to and they say, oh, he was calling out for help. Like I wrote 100% of some of those songs, so lyrically. So I was writing them to be sung by him because I knew they were true for him, but the assumption was like, we don't know, you know, the assumption that it was all coming from him and stuff made things very confusing for other people. I've also been thrust into this club that I never wanted to be a part of. And in doing so, these conversations like the one we're having today uh, have been happening. And so for me, understanding this, you know, I don't have any academic background in this stuff. I've been learning about it as things go along. But what I do know from my own personal experience watching my friend is that it was always a roller coaster. Like you just wouldn't know he'd come in and you wouldn't know if today was a good day or, not, or a bad day. And it could be, bad could mean uh, very depressed and everything was down and everything was negative, or he could be just very angry, or he could actually be just like kind of unhinged and like he could be manic, basically. It could be like, okay, he's seemingly in a good mood, but like, I don't know where this could go. Like he's there's a chicken and an egg scenario with him and drug use in which he had talked about a ton. All that said, you know, the things you were just talking about in terms of triggers of things, um, how they manifest, how they come out over time and like what people can do to fight them. 
that's not only something that I've been intimately familiar with watching and trying to help my friend for years and years and years, but now in, you know, in this year, we've seen a lot of other artists pass away from both suicide and drug use, a lot of drug use, Mm -hmm. a lot of artists, a lot of managers, a lot of touring uh, entities, people in the industry are really starting to ask themselves and one another, is there more we can do? And if so, how? It's a good question. First of all, once you layer drugs or substances Mm -hmm. of of any sort on Mm -hmm. top of another psychiatric issue, the rate of suicide goes way up. Mm -hmm. The ability to treat the underlying issue goes way down. Mm -hmm. Um, So that really is always the first order of business. That's why Mm -hmm. it's always sort of like go to rehab and you have to get, because the frontal lobe of the brain is altered by substance use such that the part that's used for learning Mm -hmm. is really impaired. And so the learning that you would do for treatment isn't possible. You can't see the mistakes you might Mm -hmm. be making and and correct or learn from them. Exactly. You're kind of, you're inhibiting yourself. And it also impacts their confidence in a large way. I, I, I heard this TED talk from almost 10 years ago talking about how People now think of someone who uh, creates something great as a genius. They go, oh, that person made something so great. They're they're a genius. genius, Artistic genius. But back in ancient, I think it was ancient Greece and Rome, they actually thought the person was a vessel and the genius came from the gods. Mm -hmm. So it was either the gods gave you the idea and lucky you, you were the person that got to to use it. it And if you didn't perform the thing if you didn't you know make the art or whatever then the genius would move on and show it to somebody else right and what i thought was cool i mean what she pointed out and i thought was cool about that that maybe applies now is that somebody i mean let's just bring it right to current times somebody like kanye west who clearly many people go oh he's creatively like what a genius but also personally falling apart and the guy is unhinged at all times and there's this element of from my perspective as an artist, I feel like I'm watching a man who's got far too much pressure. He's got pressure of the world on him saying like, keep making great things or else we're going to abandon you. And then pressure on himself saying, I've loved a lot of the things I've made. I need to hold myself to this high level of productivity, of creativity, the standard of, of craftsmanship, etc. And if I can't do that, then it's over or it's I'm depressed or whatever it is, right? And maybe I'm projecting a lot on him, but I think it's a vi- definitely, I, it's safe to say, it's a very common thing that happens to a lot of artists. A lot of them, one of the reasons why they go to substances is because I actually have a, lo- a handful of friends who don't like to create stuff unless they're high. Mm. And they do it because, well, the last time I got high and made something, I made some pretty dope shit. So now it's like a link. It's an association. Yeah, well, and then thought is like, well, I got high and I made this song. The song was dope. I I made this other song. I wasn't high. Well, really what you're saying is they're doing it from a place of fear. They are. They've got to. They they don't believe they can do it. They believe they got to be in an altered place to do it. And the drug is the daemon. Yeah. It's either that or it's a key. Like it helps like lubricate the situation and it makes it easier to get in touch with that thing whatever it is it's certainly like disinhibited yeah and and so there's something to that but there are other ways to disinhibit your mind right yeah there are actually other ways so if they're listening something like that is listening what would you say what's another way they could go about it i would say there are states of mindfulness and meditation that Um, allow you to disinhibit your mind actually that's a good point I i have a couple friends who write incredible lyrics 
while they're running because yes. their brain, yes. your brain goes somewhere else Correct. when you're running. And it's I'll, getting to a state of flow, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. flow is the key to mm-hmm. creativity to be where your mind can be messy mm-hmm. and then later organized. But the messy is disinhibited. And disinhibited, you can do that by sometimes getting into an exercise zone. And anybody, an artist, can do something like that without having to use a substance to disinhibit because, of course, the substances have an, a double-edged sword, right? There are other problems that come with that. But it's coming from that place of fear, like you're saying, the need, like, maybe I haven't really got it. How will I get it? How will I keep it? If I don't keep it, I'll be abandoned. I'll be lost. These are also psychotherapeutic issues that treatment can help someone quite a bit with, especially somebody who's already has this tendency, as you're explaining Chester did, to feel more negative or more worthless or more hopeless about things. So I have a question moving away from the artists themselves. So I know that, you know, the, the complexities of the artist and the situation, especially as you get into, you know, you, you have a fan base, there are expectations or whatever. We touched on that. Now, what I think a lot of the, the teams around the artist are wondering if there's something that they can do because they see, I've seen fans criticize the teams around people that are going through, maybe they go to rehab, maybe they yeah. go to, maybe they have a breakdown and the fans are saying, well, why didn't anybody else right. around this person right. help them? Right. What do you think about that? Because there, there are, I've heard some things lately from people in our organization, uh, like our production manager, Jim, who's saying, being on tour, Shows every night are very exciting. There is like you get a super, super big high. And then when it's over, for some people, it's a really low, low. And the that artists can feel that, but actually the crews can feel that mm-hmm, too. Mm-hmm. And he was wondering out, you know, kind of out loud with me, is there, I wonder if there's anything we could do to kind of mm-hmm. help out. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, let me just say, it's really unfair to blame anyone. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Even a psychiatrist, even if, Chester were sitting in my office, mm-hmm. might not be able to tell that that person eminently is going to kill themselves. Mm-hmm. Certainly without saying, are you thinking of killing yourself? Do you have a plan? What is the plan? Do you have access to that plan? Mm-hmm. Now, if you get affirmatives to all that, that is a person you are, <laughs> you know, you you can know something about, but people hide things, they guard things, right. they, right? So, and most they people aren't asking themselves. those questions. Yeah. But short of that, there is no surefire way mm-hmm. to know. But there are particular red flags. And the reason I say it's unfair to blame people is, you know, everybody's already struggling with this ripple effect of this loss. Yeah. Adding to that with blame and guilt is is not a helpful thing. So to be specific though, I'm wondering on behalf flags, yes. of on behalf of those people who yes. I know may be listening, they were yes. they're gonna say, yes. well is there something I can yes. do? Yes, yes. So drivers of suicide that people don't think are drivers aren't just sadness, depression. They are particulars like shame shame, humiliation. So when you say, you know, where's my next big hit and will people leave me? Shame. And the fear of that, no, I didn't make it this time or this Mm. one stunk, is actually a particular driver of suicide. So if you hear things about someone expressing shame or seeming to be feeling shame, if you see them starting to dispense with like, let me bequeath in any sort of way this to you Mm. as though, and even look like they're starting to feel better in Mm -hmm. the face of doing that. Mm -hmm. That is a big red flag. High anger and irritability, a big red flag. Men especially experience depression and symptomatically reflect depression by being highly irritable and angry. Males are often not recognized as having depression. They're just thought to be jerks. 
Mm-hmm. And that's a real problem. That's why men are undertreated in this country for depression. So that anger that is there gets turned inward and you take yourself out. That is a big red flag. So knowing very specific red flags that have combinations that aren't just like I'm up, I'm down, it's a bad day. And basically, you know, taking that person by the arm and saying, I see this, I know this is this is in there. I'm going to go with you Mm. to somebody now. Mm -hmm. So it does have to be a now kind of thing. People who are in that state often can't organize themselves to find an appropriate person. It's like a therapy intervention? A therapy intervention. Oh, wow. What I've just heard you describe is more on that edge case of someone who may be contemplating suicide. Mm -hmm. But in terms of trying to move earlier in the chain to try to maintain a healthier Mm -hmm. mental state for Mm -hmm. all these team members involved, prevent getting further down that road? Are there things that we can be doing to be more supportive kind of on the front end before those red flags start to to appear? We're at the yellow and green flag stage. Yeah, Mm -hmm. well, we are a nation woefully unaware of preventive mental health care. Like we have preventive Mm -hmm. cardiac care and diabetic care and all, all of these things we spend lots of money on and lots of awareness on and time on doing. But nobody thinks about preventive mental health care, and that is a real thing, and it's very important. To some degree, we could be doing a better job of knowing what those things are by doing more research, mm. but we do know certain things. Okay. So there are things such as, which are probably not very conducive to a, a banned lifestyle, but aerobic activity four times a week, even more, intense aerobic activity actually goes head-to-head with medication for mild to moderate depression and for anxiety. Sustaining that makes the likelihood of dipping into one of those situations far less likely. Sleep is hugely important. I know everybody wants to sleep. So for instance, lack of sleep can tip off a depression or a manic episode um, if you have a propensity in any of those directions. So a regular amount, you know, seven to nine hours with some sort of regular, those things actually make a difference. Being able to have a support system of people you can talk to, it doesn't have to be a therapist. It could be other people in your life, but they have to be people that you trust and that you have a certain level of intimacy with because people that you have to uphold a veneer with tends to make people feel worse, even worse than not having spoken to them at all. They feel like a fake and a phony Mm. and uh, they're, you know, they're further and further trapped in themselves. Not a use of social media. Um, You know, I mean, that can be used here and there for like the connection when you can't make any connection Mm. otherwise. But we're we're lacking real relatedness with facial expression, with body language, and those kinds of connections are what create intimacy. And loneliness, which is the feeling you get when you're texting someone and you don't see what's going on and that's the only kind of connection you have, that spurs depression, anxiety. Okay. I, I actually, I love that part because it is so, at this point, so universal there's a couple pieces to that that I love to remind at least our fans, my fans, which is that number one, you've got a power in your hands of, with your attention. And when you're just always on social media, just kind of flitting in a way, you're giving away that currency. I mean, you're giving it to who, whatever shows up in your timeline. And by the way, a lot of times we're not conscious enough of what we're looking at 
to say to ourselves, does this thing deserve my attention? You're just giving it to the worst headlines, the worst articles. You're clicking on crazy things because that part of your brain goes, well, that's, I'm curious about that. Let's click on that. And to be fair, they've also designed the systems, the people who control these technology platforms, they know how our minds work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They know the emotional lures and triggers and they bake those in. So they're measuring your attention and that currency as you described it. In a sense, they can make a great argument for like that optimizing your experience and making more fun for you. Yeah. But fun for that, they're gauging that in terms of, of, interaction and activity not in terms of does it making you depressed or like, a they healthier don't know. Wait, person. so they're calling yeah. it fun i would call it compulsion yeah in other words it's it's a feedback loop you get some sort of positive feeling and that makes you your brain go let's do it again because right. that felt good i gotta do it again right. and once that's baked in mm. even when you go wow that did not feel good you now already have the compulsion. But most people don't stop and say, wow, that didn't feel good. They turn right around to somebody else, text or talk and say, man, did you read this headline? Oh, did you hear what so-and-so did? So we infect each other with that. Yeah, and and then it's just, it is infection, right? So one thing that I talk about a lot is just be really aware of your, your, like take your temperature and your mental Mm -hmm. health temperature more often. Like Mm -hmm. when you wake up, I tell fans, when you wake up in the morning, you may check in with your body and say, wow, my back hurts. I should take it easy today. If it's worse, oh, I should see a doctor, maybe any medication, you know, so on. But you don't do that for your brain. And that's a place where you can make a change. Where you say, oh, I'm waking up in the morning, my body feels fine, but my brain feels like I don't feel that good today. And do I need to stay home? Do I need to take it easy? Should I not be on Twitter and Instagram right. today? Should I not, you know, do I actually need to not go into work and I need to go see a doctor or, today? Or to, to carry a heavy emotional burden that yeah, day. Yeah, like to if the you, that you can control that. If you've got friends texting you about something, a favor, an emotional favor or something that they need help with or whatever, that you aren't the only human being in the world that could help them with that thing. Maybe they could get that help somewhere else. Opt out. I mean, that's really like a mental health sick day. If you've already, if you've already checked in with yourself and you said, man, I'm just feeling like on a scale of one to 10, I'm at like a five today. And then somebody else puts their junk on you. Like you're just not the best person to deal with it that day. Self-observation, which is what you're describing is one of the first points of therapy. In other words, so sometimes people just get better, like something's going on and you, as a therapist, I tell them, I want you to go home and I want you to keep a journal and I want you to take your temperature Mm -hmm. on whatever it is we're looking at, how often you worry, how often you, and just the self-observation and recording actually makes it diminish. So that, that's actually a great thing to do. And as you said, also could cue someone in, okay, I need something more. Maybe if it's not diminishing, if it's a problem, I need something more. And you can even apply it. You can even make it a part of your routine at work or at school. In my band, we actually have done this. We did this years ago where before we had a band meeting, we always did a check-in first. How is everybody doing? Because once in a while you get, you know, you can, most days you come in, oh, these things are going on. We kind of know what each going on in each other's lives. But once in a while you get somebody coming in and saying, I'm just really not, you guys didn't know this, but this is going on in my life. I'm a little bit stressed out or I'm a little bit down or I'm a little, it's, it's hard right now for me. So then you see, once you have that, you've given that piece of information to everybody yeah. else that you wouldn't have otherwise given them. You've just, otherwise you would have just jumped in the meeting. Let's talk yeah. about these things. But all of a sudden you, you know that this one person is like, maybe they're a little sensitive to certain topics today mm-hmm. and you'll be so much more empathic yes empathic and you're it sounds as well you know there can be a really high burden to quote unquote ask for help but what you've just described 
is a step short of that. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of declaring where you are mm-hmm. and allowing others around you to help in a more implicit or passive way. So it's not like, I think that because of the shame uh, aspect yeah. that you talked about, doctor, there's a fear of looking weak, mm-hmm. of being judged as incapable, and I can't carry this load. So you're not going that far. You're just saying, this is where I'm at. Mm. And then your friends, your coworkers, your family members can step up. And we do, if we're really connected to each other, right. tend to adjust for each other. It's, so it's there, like stoking empathy, which, yeah, which yeah, we're very short on that today. Empathy pump. Yeah, you know, yeah. uh, doing much of that. But really, we should be teaching children and teaching adults how valuable and important empathy is. And empathy, which is, you know, I, I can stand in your shoes. Well, if I don't know where your shoes are, right. I can't stand in them. So you're right. you're giving them that information and that's super valuable. It's important to be able to be both empathic, which also feels good, Mm -hmm. as well as receive the empathy. These are the kinds of things that I would even say preventively in terms of preventive. Are we learning coping skills that work for ourselves? Are we doing things to think about our resilience and like how, what are tools for us to bounce back from things? Do we have like a toolbox assembled for ourselves? Empathy, I think is, is one of those things. I would give your band another homework assignment. Oh boy, here we go. (laughs) Band homework, hashtag band homework. Another useful thing to do, believe it or not, is to gratefulness actually really boosts mood. You look like you maybe already have done this one, but like coming together and saying at the end of the day to yourself or to your bandmates, three things for which you're really, and they could be like little things like I had a great cup of tea this afternoon. You know, they could be small or they could be bigger, but shifting the focus that it shows even after a couple of weeks of doing that really does improve mood. Mm -hmm. One of the things that does not improve mood and can inhibit some of what we've just been talking about is the stigma around expressions of mental health concerns, mental illness, symptoms. And I'm curious for you, Mike, and for you, doctor, how you've experienced this, what you've observed in your own journey around people's judgment Mm. and people's fears of expressing their, even their concerns with social media in real life, the combination, but where does stigma stand and where do you stand on it? I mean, I think the good news is at least in my experience, it's a little bit the stigma and the, I feel like there's a tendency in Americans in particular that I've experienced, at least my experience has been, you know, we're tough, we can handle it. Like we don't, you know. Suck it up. So for example, yeah, suck it up. Like for example, can you imagine waking up in the morning and going like, wow, I've I've had a really bad week. All this stuff is going on and I just feel depressed and calling into work and telling your boss like, look, I need a day off. Your boss would be like, you're fired. Yeah. Right? They're not going to Absolutely. They're not going to stand for that. They're going to say, "Look, I I've got all these other people, nobody else is complaining." Oh, come on. It's all in your head. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's just a, not understanding the biology of these issues. Mm-hmm. These are your brain is an organ. If you have a neurotransmitter imbalance, which has to do with what's going on in your day and how you've been feeling. Mm-hmm. The brain talks to itself through neurotransmitters. Mm. Feelings are neurotransmitters. Like like all of the psychology is biology. Exactly. That is how the brain works. And so when something is happening in the brain, if you called in and said, I'm having chest pain, I think I might be having a heart attack. I don't think your boss would say, well, you're fired. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and, and we have to start understanding it that way as opposed to like, you could just suck it up. 
we have to, and this is actually where I think you, people like you actually have a much bigger impact than people like me. I don't know, says the author of six books. But, yeah, but no, really, a much bigger impact on stigma because it's people needing to understand how ubiquitous these issues are, that they happen to the most successful and the least successful. They happen to everybody. It cuts every swath. And people don't want to be associated with someone who was, you know, in the 1800s chained to a wall because they were, quote, crazy. But they do want to feel like, well, yeah, I could be that basketball player or that musician or that whatever. And I'm struggling, but that doesn't mean I'm not intelligent, able, I don't have good stuff going on. So it's the people who are able to do and yet able to reveal their story that makes a huge difference, able to reveal that they got treatment and the treatment helped them. And that was important. Able to, and you know, I hate to be so bottom line here, but the reality is that mental health receives the least dollars by a large margin than any other health issue for research, for clinical care. And if we don't learn more, we're not going to have better treatments. If we don't support clinical treatment, then in lots of parts of the country where people can't afford it out of pocket, they're not going to get it. And so it's people like you who will motivate those movements that will raise dollars for research. That's just a reality. Yeah. How would both of you say you'd like us as a society and individuals within it to be talking about mental health and mental illness in five years in a way that's better than we do today? I think the thing that I learned this year that was when I heard it, it was like, oh, that's something that we've kind of been accidentally doing in a sense, but you can do it much more intentionally, is to make a routine out of it, to create little routines, either for yourself or for your communities, whatever they are, your family unit, your, your, your work community, your school community, whatever it is, just to create little routines out of it. Since we're not yet doing it naturally, I think we need to create schedule out of it in order to do it. What about you? Um, that makes great sense to me. Um, I think that we have to be more aware of the many times we're still talking so pejoratively about mental health issues, throw out the word crazy, nuts, mm -hmm. media, you know, TV shows, movies, that this is the stuff where people unfortunately learn their medical information, often say, deprecating terrible things essentially about someone with mental illness or for that matter, people who treat mental illness. Psychiatrists are never portrayed well in the media, let me just say. But um, so I think that if we could, you know, shift our mind's eye to the idea that, you know, things can be, you can be differently wired in your brain, which many people are close to all of half of the, all Americans at some point or another will struggle with this, which means the other half have somebody in that group they love. So we're all going to be touched if we could recognize the ubiquitousness, recognize these are sometimes disease states that need treatment like any other kind of disease states, and probably even more so because if your mind is not well, it's really hard for your body to even be well. So nothing's well. This should take more of a front and center, people sharing their stories, most definitely, much more openly. And hopefully all of that in my mind leads to, because you know I am a physician, that we put more effort into, frankly, researching this area and providing better treatments because this area lags behind others in many ways. Um, we need better, more specific, defined treatments for the wiring issue, the neurotransmitter issue that's going on. And I think that it can be gotten, but we have to have 
a very different way of digesting all of this and seeing that there's another side, that there are real strengths and pluses in people who struggle with these issues. So we have to start talking to our children about mental health, how to build a plan, how to not be ashamed, how to seek help, and how to find their potential, how to find their strength as a result and be their best selves. I'm feeling so inspired right now. If there's anything related to this topic that you feel like, I wanted to say this, I got to get this off my chest. Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, the only thing that we didn't touch on, I'm proud of my wife. I'm proud of uh, Chester's uh, wife, Talinda. They've both been involved with an organization called, um, well, Talinda's um, arm of it is called 320 Changes Direction. Uh, Change Direction is a great organization. And if uh, you're curious about this stuff, then you can go check them out and support them. And also people should check out your album, Post Traumatic, and support you. Appreciate that. Yes. Thank you. And there's also this single, Make It Up As I Go. That's really a, a central theme, not only to the record, but to kind of everything that I'm doing right now. There's an element of, you know, when you feel like you have options, when you feel like you are um, have some control over things, even if that means control in choosing to improvise, right? That can really empower you, make you feel good. Uh, so the new song is all about that. The video is about that. And I'd say, you know, in in like a more of a philosophical kind of way, the, the whole tour is about that. Post-traumatic stress disorder, by the way, which many people suffer after a, a suicide of somebody close to them. A suicide of a child increases likelihood of suicide of a parent mm. and vice versa. Mm. I mean, the ripple effect of suicide is quite significant. And people often do struggle with literally post-traumatic mm. events following and they have to take care of themselves too. That's really important. Since we are here in the venue, yeah. I'm going to go out and do a sound check after this. Um, one of the nice things about a show like this, which if you guys stick around, you'll be uh, a part of, is that it is more about the post part than the traumatic part. This is a very cathartic and heartwarming, and by the way, energetic and fun show. You know, I don't think it's due entirely to, to my role in it, although I'm kind of emceeing it, I'm running, you know, directing traffic. But I've found that, you know, these fans who come to this show, they've lost somebody. They've, yeah. you know, they've admired Chester for many years. Some of them have, many of them have tattoos of the band, of my art, of his face, of our lyrics on their bodies. And so they come and I would never want to give them a night that was sad and depressing and dark. Like I want to, I want them to have a great night. So these shows have been, every night they've been this wonderful healing and super, super fun experience. I want to take a page out of the newly written playbook that Dr. Saltz has offered us and express gratitude deeply to both of you. Mike, you said that showing emotional intelligence is not a sign of weakness. Mm. I think it's a very powerful new lyric that you just wrote. <laughs> it doesn't have a matching set yet, but you can work on that in post. Um, and, and Dr. Saltz, you gave us a number of steps, both on warning signs of people at the edge around you know, giving away things that are close to them, mm. around expressing some sense of shame, and around being jerks or super angry that might be masking a deeper depression. And even more useful to more of us, I think, how to create the community that we want to be living in. That's one of exercise and sleep and uh, having that circle of trust around us, uh, an expression of gratitude within that circle. So I will close by saying to you and to all listening, mental illness 
is just illness and mental health is simply health. And those who live with it are not crazy people. Thank you, doctor. They're just people. We all need help from time to time, whether it be with a broken leg or a broken heart or a broken mind. And especially in the realm of mental illness, a little compassion goes a long way. Remember, as we say often in this show, we are all connected. We are all human. So let's be mindful of what those around us are going through, even when our minds are full. If you or someone you know needs help, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That phone number is 1-800-273-8255. Again, that's 1-800-273-8255, or just call 911. I want to thank you both for being here. Mike Shinoda, Dr. Gail Saltz. I've learned and I've grown, and I think our listeners will as well. So thanks for being so generous. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. In the wake of that emotional and eye-opening conversation, I was inspired to learn even more about the science that underpins the experience and the explainers of mental health. So I got on the phone with Dr. Ahmad Hariri to talk about what the latest research tells us is going on in our brains, what role our genes play, and how to channel these learnings into providing more treatment for more people. All right. Good morning, Dr. Hariri. Uh, thanks for making time. I'm sorry we couldn't be face to face. Yes, me um, too, Bartunde. And, and please feel free to call me Ahmad. Ahmad. Yes. yes. We're already in the first. Well, feel free to call me Mr. Thurston. <laughs> you, you got it. I want to talk with you about biology and the brain and its relationship to mental health, particularly uh, anxiety and depression. I want to get into the research that you've done with 23andMe. Right. And I want to talk about where that research can help take the larger cultural conversation around mental health. Do those three sort of areas sound like that makes sense? That's fair? Is there something else that you're like, we have to get to this, though? No, no, no. That's that's more than fair, Barton. Okay. I just, uh, you know, if we have uh, several months to do this again and again, maybe we'll cover it all <laughs> satisfactorily. Right. But we'll, we'll, I promise to do my best. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Professor. I'm, sure. I'm, you're, you're used to explaining complex concepts, so we're going to take advantage of your official skills. Great, great. One of the things that we understand is that there can be a layered reasoning for mental health. That is, there are biological explainers. There are also environmental explainers. And because of your work as a professor of psychology and neuroscience, I'd like you to take us inside the brain and talk about the biology and, and the neuroscience of where anxiety, depression, other forms of mental health live. Absolutely, Bartunde. And I think your, your conceptualization of mental illness as consisting of layers is very apt in terms of what we've begun to learn about the brain in the context of depression and anxiety, it's increasingly clear that there may be differences in how individuals' brains react to their experiences and kind of produce different responses to challenges that we really all face in our daily lives. And it's really at that interface of an individual's brain and how it's processing information, how it's processing their experiences, and those experiences that we think ultimately can shape and give rise to the experience of depression or anxiety. In other words, it's differences in an individual's brain interacting with their environments, with their own um, experiences and trajectories in life that ultimately will help determine who is at greater or lesser risk for experiencing depression or anxiety, rather than there being simply a difference in the brain that is 
absolutely going to be expressed as depression or anxiety, it's become much more clear that it really is an interaction between an individual's brain and that associated biology and their experiences through life, that we, we have to understand both sides of that equation in order to really make headway in the treatment and, and what we all hope will ultimately be the prevention of depression and anxiety. That, so, so what I'm hearing, I, I'm, I'm going to try to be a good student here sure. and sort of <laughs> play back what I heard the professor share. First of all, it's complicated, right? It actually sounds like it's about the relationship. Yes. And so there, there are these three parts, right? There's the brain. Right. There are the experiences, and then there's the interaction of the brain with those experiences. And so if we're thinking about different people, we all have different brains. Right. We all have different experiences. We do. And that relationship, that interaction between the brain and those experiences is, of course, itself going to be different. So how am I doing? Absolutely. A plus, Baratunde. Right. Yeah, it's, you know, <laughs> biology is not, in this context, is not deterministic. The brain not only has a remarkable capacity to change and uh, this concept of plasticity, but it has a way of shaping both our experiences and then being shaped by those experiences. So to say that it's complicated, I think, is more than fair. <laughs> yeah. But we are, we are starting to develop some at least rudimentary understanding of specific features of an individual's brain that can make them more or less sensitive to particularly uh, negative experiences in their lives, like stress, whether it be common daily stressors or very significant traumatic experiences uh, in their lives. For example, those who live through hurricanes or who live through other you know, natural disasters, we're starting to make some headway in appreciating how the differences in their brains uh, will help us better understand their relative sensitivity to these kinds of experiences. And, so I would yeah. love for there to just be fewer worse experiences, yes. right? less stress, fewer <laughs> hurricanes, fewer acts of violence, yes. fewer emails. Right, uh, right. right. Um, and tweets and texts exactly. and everything. Anything that, that causes stress, turn, <laughs> yes. turn it down. Yes. Uh, I'm assuming your research isn't focused on uh, changing the entire world, but rather understanding our brains and how it interacts with that world. So, so can you describe the nature of your research and with 23andMe in particular, and what are you looking at and what are you finding? Sure. Let me start with some of the understanding that we've developed over the years about the brain. I think fundamentally what we're starting to observe is that there are core aspects, there are core circuits, I like to describe them, in the brain that are responsible for kind of doing different things for us in our daily lives. There's a circuit that is really there to help us respond to danger and avoid danger and overcome danger. Then there's another circuit in the brain that is really there to help motivate us to pursue good things. The first one is to avoid bad things in our lives, and the second one is to pursue good things, to develop motivation, and through that motivation, develop actions that help us achieve rewards and experience pleasure. And then above those two circuits, the danger circuit and the reward circuit, if you will, there is a much more recently evolved control circuit. And what we're starting to understand is that if there is a balance between your sensitivity to, to danger, your eagerness to pursue rewards, and your ability to control these two drives is ultimately the most adaptive 
condition for an individual's brain. You want to have balance across these. And whenever we see imbalance, in particular when we see poor control or poor ability to regulate our responses to danger or reward, that's when we start to see manifestations of abnormal behavior or features of mental illness like depression or anxiety. Those are the kind of the elements that we study. As you very eloquently uh, stated, Baratunde, we're not going to be able to, despite our, our greatest wishes and intentions, we're not going to be able to protect everyone from having bad experiences. It's right. literally part of living. One of the things that we want to do is by understanding a person's brain and, and, and the balance between these three circuits in their brain, we want to be able to basically identify people who may be more in need of the limited services and support the society can provide in order to protect them from stressors that would otherwise lead them to experience anxiety and depression. We, we essentially want to develop what we call biomarkers or measures of an individual's brain that can help us identify their relative risk and in doing so allow us to direct the very limited resources that we have, unfortunately and sadly, to that person and not to people who may be otherwise resilient to those same negative experiences. That's really where our work kind of lives. Now with 23andMe, what we've really uh, been excited about is the opportunity to take these these aspects of an individual's brain, this balance between these three systems or circuits in the brain, and represent them at the level of their DNA. Ah. You know, we know that that variation in an individual's DNA and their genomes is very important for the development of the brain and how their brain and these circuits operate. So if we can, working with 23andMe and, and really extending the work to population levels of research, meaning hundreds of thousands of people, we ultimately would love to be able to essentially develop what, what I call a genomic or, or a DNA signature for an individual that tells us about these aspects of their brain function. And I think it's at that level that we can really start to talk in an important way and in a powerful way about prevention. Because if we have those genomic signatures, sadly we, we don't, we're, and, and we're likely still quite a ways from them, but that's where we want to be. We can identify those genomic signatures really at the moment of birth. And through that, be able to start to consider an individual's relative risk or resilience and sculpt the support systems for those individuals in a way that would help protect them from developing conditions like depression or anxiety. Does that make sense? It actually does. Um, I Remarkable. Think, I think you're either a great teacher or maybe maybe I'm a great student. But... I, think, I think there's a little bit of each involved. <laughs> so, and, and you answered many questions that I would have naturally asked. So I'll, I'll okay. shift it a little to say, I get the idea of these three circuits, right? You have the right. control of the balance between reward and danger. And and balance, you know, I'm thinking yin and yang. I'm thinking the force, right? Balance is always something that we want just to be able to literally move in the world. Balance is important. And some of us have more difficulty balancing than others. You got it. You got it. So that makes sense. Also, what makes sense is that there would be something encoded in us that Mm -hmm. might reveal our likelihood or our, our probability of having Challenges with control. Right. And that, that's the biomarkers you're referring to, these genetic markers. Exactly. Uh, that, that somewhere in our DNA, we could find people who are more likely to experience this or not. 
And you've also explained that we're not there yet. So we don't right. know the exact markers and maybe how many. Right. And so by comparison, is there a field of genetics that is sort of your role model where you say, oh, we do know the, the biomarkers here. There's these many. This is how they show up. We can screen for it. And I would love for this field of mental health study and brain study to be on the level with that other genetic research? Who, who's, the, uh, who's the bigger sibling that is, in biomarker genetic research that we could look up to? Yeah, that's a great question and one that's not easily addressed uh, because there is really nothing else out there in terms of a disease state or maladaptive state of being that compares to the mind and compares to mental illness. It's so much more complex than, for example, heart disease or even forms of cancer, where there are breakthroughs in terms of genomic signatures that may help actually direct specific treatments for cancer. I actually think we're starting to make headway within our own field. The example that came to my mind, Baratunde, when you asked the question was actually the genetics of height. It okay. looks superficially so simple, right? If you have tall parents, then you're going to be a tall kid and so forth and so on. But when we started to look at the actual variation in our DNA that explained height, it was very hard to find. And it wasn't until we had literally hundreds of thousands of participants of, of individuals whose height was measured and for whom we had DNA that we started to explicitly account for the genetic drive on height, which we know is hugely important. What basically we found is that it's a lot of genes and a lot of variation in a lot of genes across our genome, across all of our DNA, that ultimately helps us account for the heritability, the, the kind of the family nature of height. We're seeing the same thing in, with regards to mental illness. Although mental illness, you know, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, these are so much more complex than even height. But we need to really have one, very large data sets, which a company like 23andMe is already developing uh, through their customers and is poised to advance by collaboration with other large studies across the world. And when we have those large numbers of individuals in these studies, I think what we're going to find is that there is variation all over the genome across hundreds of genes, if not thousands of genes, that collectively work together in ways that are going to be even more complex to shape the kind of what we strive for in understanding an individual's kind of genetic risk or familial risk for mental illness. So more data is absolutely paramount. Right. And then we need to marry the quantity of data with the quality of data. So one of the one of the movements in psychiatry and the study of mental illness has been to shift away from these categories, these bins where someone's depressed, someone's anxious, someone's bipolar, someone's schizophrenic. It's very clear from those in the practice of, of studying and treating mental illness that those categories are largely artificial and they bleed across each other. And so it's moved to this more dimensional perspective on mental illness. Let's consider symptoms that may be shared across multiple categories of mental illness. You know, to feel depressed is not unique to someone who's been diagnosed with depression, right. but it's present right. in someone with an anxiety disorder. It's present in someone with psychosis, bipolar disorder, you know, schizophrenia, obsessive compulsive disorder. So I think 
marrying this increase in the, in the quantity of data with the quality of how we're measuring mental illness and the, the specific symptoms that people are experiencing, that's ultimately going to get us closer to a genomic signature, a genomic biomarker of those conditions, uh, which then subsequently we can leverage to hopefully begin to address risk in a way that will prevent the emergence of illness uh, altogether. Because the other thing that we know is that treating illness, be it a medical illness or a psychiatric illness, is always an uphill battle, and we really never can get people back to wellness. Uh, We can get them to feel better than they may have felt, but it's a tremendously uh, sad kind of um, observation that's been made over time that people really don't return to being well after they've developed mental illness. What's the ideal? What's the dream case when you think about a successful path? Yeah. We get the quantity of data. We get the increased quality of how we interpret that data. We're able to identify people who have more control challenges than others and more right. susceptible to mental health. And so then we target better therapeutic treatment, better pharmaceutical treatment. Do we talk about mental illness differently because of these insights? What's the dream state here? Yeah, I mean, you, you've, you've actually captured it quite well already. But for me, ultimately, we would want to be able to use a, a relatively simple, a relatively easily collected measure of an individual. And, you know, this podcast is called SPIT, and SPIT is about as easy as, as can be. Let's collect some SPIT. Let's look at the DNA and basically identify a genomic signature, a genomic biomarker of risk that doesn't just tell us whether there's high or low risk, but actually tells us where the risk is manifest in the brain. In other words, we might have a genomic signature that's associated, and this is the, this is the fantasy, remember? I, I don't want to suggest that we're ready to do this now because we're okay. not, but the fantasy is... I asked you to dream. Yes, I'm dreaming big. Um, <laughs> We would have a genomic signature, for example, for an individual who has relatively high danger sensitivity or threat sensitivity, as we say, and relatively low reward drive, but you know, normal control. So in, in the case of that individual, we would, we would try to address the relative risk by managing their, their kind of pursuit of rewards, their motivation to pursue experiences that bring them joy, that they find rewarding and and try and kind of normalize or achieve that balance through that specific pathway. Then you may have a genomic signature for someone who has basically a kind of a typical threat and reward response, but poor control. You know, the analogy that I like to use is is if you are, you know, just an ordinary driver, and then all of a sudden you find yourself behind the wheel of a Formula One race car that's not going to go well for anybody. (laughs) So these risk signatures, in my mind, and and people find it surprising to hear this from me because I am a biologist, I really think that the best way to help protect people from developing mental illness, depression, anxiety in particular, is, is to allow them and to afford them opportunities to exercise and develop control which is essentially what psychotherapy is. Cognitive behavioral therapy and the various derivatives of psychotherapy ultimately work to empower the individual to better control their experiences. Uh, So rather than a magic pill that we would give to individuals based on a genomic signature, what I dream of is 
based on those genomic signatures, making particular resources available to those individuals like therapists or counselors or, or other individuals, educators in their lives that can really help encourage and cultivate better control. You know, like so many things, it's something that we should all have, right? We should yeah. all we should all strive for this. We should all have the opportunity to develop control, but we don't. And I, for one, don't want to wait for a utopian society where everyone can have access to this. I would rather move ahead more quickly and be able to target individuals who more need this and make this available to them to ultimately help them as they develop throughout their lives and, and really are able to then successfully navigate the challenges that we're all going to face. You've given me so much uh, hope right now. Like, <laughs> I think my my uh, reward yes. piece, uh, circuit is lighting up. Great. Because yes. it's something to look forward to. And it's, it's, you're appealing to something, you're describing something very universal, yeah. right? which is empowering yeah. of people right. and of individuals, right. and, but also recognizing in the real world, not everyone has access to that. Exactly. And so in your dream future, which yeah. I'm, I'm signing up for it now, putting it on the mailing list. That's two of us, man. <laughs> then, uh, then we could target these resources and better distribute them. Uh, we've all probably known people in our lives sure. who have more resources to address problems. Just yes. Something Absolutely. more objective, like a financial problem, a little yeah. less complicated right. than neuroscience and yes. genetic biomarkers. Yes. Uh, and so this is, uh, I like this view. I like this picture that you've painted. Yeah, and I think through a biological lens, perhaps people can be more committed to developing these resources and distributing these resources in a way that, that's most helpful to individuals. That's where the biology and our deepening understanding of the brain and the genetics associated with mental illness can help kind of drive us forward. For me, for example, it's so strange to hear anyone talk about mental illness or the mind or behavior as distinct from the brain because that's just not where I come from. You know, that's not my pedigree. Yeah. But it's still the case. And I think mental illness still is stigmatized and, the, you know, the initial hope that by simply identifying that mental illness is rooted in biology is going to lift this stigma. It's not happened. It's As we said at the beginning of our conversation, it's complicated. But I do believe that continuing to drive forward our biological understanding of these phenomena will help us educate individuals as to their importance and liberate the people suffering from these conditions from kind of prejudice, from being targeted, thus allow them to receive these resources uh, that they need. We don't have these extended families that take care of each other anymore, especially in the West. We're, we're kind of yeah. more fractured and we're more isolated, and that places greater responsibility on society as a whole to provide the resources that, that individuals need. What, why do you think that the stigma has persisted despite our deepening understanding that there are some biological, i.e., uncontrollable right. underpinnings for people's experience of mental health challenges and disorders? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And I feel like perhaps we as biologists haven't done enough to articulate our findings and to make them accessible to individuals to really promote the view of, of mental illness as any kind of illness, as an illness that's born out of problems in our biology and how our bodies are, are working and operating. I would love to engage in a larger discussion with you and others who are kind of engaged with policy and, and social and cultural kind of shifts 
to try and make more headway because, again, to me, it's just, pardon the pun, it's mind-boggling <laughs> to think of them as being anything but manifestations of our biology. Um, yeah. I really just don't understand it. I think maybe perhaps it's because we don't have you know, a scan, we don't have a blood test uh, where a doctor can definitively say, well, you know, I'm sorry, you know, Mr. Smith, but you have depression and here's your scan. We don't have those kinds of diagnostic tools. Right. I'm not sure we ever will, but you know, again, these genomic signatures, if they're if they're identified and established with kind of confidence and great predictive value, those could be the type of diagnostic tools or tests that other aspects of healthcare have had that we can use to promote and to further kind of educate the public and uh, individuals about the real nature of mental illness. I look forward to some more of those diagnostic tools to empower all of us because I think we all, whether we're suffering or close to people who are, we're carrying uh, an unnecessary burden. Yes. I think this will be my my last question as we wrap up class. Okay. Um, And and it's, (laughs) it's for you to summarize the key learnings from the research so far. Sure. I think the key learning and the key kind of observations that we have developed in our own research and and the research of many colleagues is that imbalance between, in particular, an individual's sensitivity to threat and danger and their kind of drive to achieve rewards and to experience pleasure, when there's imbalance there, we oftentimes see that associated with higher sensitivity to stress because you have the the, 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 drive, the danger signal and you don't have that kind of buffering of positive emotion and reward, that's a particularly problematic imbalance. And that in the face of this imbalance, it becomes much more important and much more critical to have a very strong control circuit. So that's where that third circuit comes right. in. If you have and if you're allowed to develop and exercise and practice control over your behavior, in particular over your response to danger and your ability to pursue rewards, then that imbalance at the level of the other two circuits is not going to be expressed as depression or anxiety. This is kind of a a trite uh, word, but we have to have a more holistic appreciation of how the brain is operating. And we've been guilty of this as well. We've long focused on one circuit while ignoring others. And that's partly due to the limitations of conducting research. But as we move forward collectively, we really have to think about how these three circuits are dynamically interacting to hopefully achieve balance in in a person's behavior and experiences. And then what kind of imbalance is present within an individual that may be associated with with depression, anxiety, or other forms of mental illness? One of the things that we often say to the public, those of us who have access, you know, if you're experiencing depressive state or challenges, if your loved one or someone you're close to is, call the number, right? Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a number right. for suicide prevention right. that you should call, but there's more than that available to us. What yeah. else would you suggest for people who are experiencing a mental health moment or yeah. someone that they're close to are, how else should we be thinking about what we can do in response before all the great research and resource allocation comes in, to be real? Sure. I think one of the biggest challenges for someone who is experiencing depression or anxiety is the feeling of isolation. 
rather than to look immediately for a clinical outlet like a hotline or or uh, admitting oneself to to an emergency room or a hospital is to hopefully reach out to family or friends and to be able to just talk about the experiences I think is hugely beneficial and then to and, and probably is really hard to do for a lot of people is just to talk openly about their experiences and allow our social support networks to do their job. Mm. Don't just think of them as there for fun and for good times, but they're much more important when we're struggling. We have to help people reach out to those who they know, who they're comfortable with, who they trust, who they're closest to first. And then those people can't ignore what they may be seeing in their friends and loved ones. You know, if you're seeing a person's mood change, their behavior change in in a kind of a drastic way, in a persistent way, I think it's paramount to approach them, to, you know, initiate a conversation with them and not not allow them to be isolated. I think that is absolutely critical in, in helping someone initially in protecting them from more harm and, and, and kind of a deterioration into further kind of isolation and, and deepening symptoms. And then from that point, I think that social support network can help get them into a clinic, uh, you know, meeting with a psychiatrist or a psychologist and, and to develop kind of a more structured approach to ultimately kind of uh, relieving this kind of state of anxiety or depression. Thank you again. Sure. Uh, I've learned so much, <laughs> and I am going to uh, consider enrolling in your class and change my whole I, life. You know what? You, you, I will save a seat for you always. <laughs> you are very welcome to come down here, and I think we would have a great time uh, if you did. <laughs> All right. Want to dig in more on today's topics and guests? Check our show notes. And if you enjoyed the episode, share it with a friend, all your friends, and be sure to leave a review. If you want to hear more surprising stories about how we're all related, search and follow Spit on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Spit is an iHeartRadio podcast with 23andMe. I'm Baratunde Thurston. You can find out more about me at baratunde.com or sign up for my text messages. Just hit me up at 202-902-7949. Put hashtag spit podcast in your message so I know where you came from.